Well, this morning I want to speak to us on the theme of life in the kingdom, life in the kingdom, as we continue our series going through the book of 2 Corinthians. What are the priorities that we have as the people of God? We know that we go through our time as believers with a great commission to go into all the world and to make what? Disciples. And then Jesus has told us to live walking and obeying the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love uh, others as you love yourself. But another priority, and we could probably think of a list of 10 or 20, but one of the priorities that we have as God's people in God's kingdom is to bring each other comfort and joy. To bring each other comfort and joy in the Spirit. So what we will see as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and we'll just take the whole chapter, it, it, it sort of, I feel, needs to be preached altogether to, to understand Paul's thought in this section of Scripture is that the believers in Corinth, so Paul's writing a letter, he's in Macedonia, he's writing a letter to a church that he's planted in a very strategic city called Corinth, a very large and important city in the Roman Empire, but he's writing a letter from Macedonia, Greece, to Corinth, uh, and he's, he is um, telling them how appreciative he is that they have responded to his last letter. Okay, and he wrote them a tough letter, and they have responded to that where he's confronted them about some things, and they responded. And so this chapter uh, is specifically about how the believers in Corinth, through their obedience to the Apostle Paul, has comforted Paul and has also brought him great joy, because, not because they're obeying Paul, but because they're obeying Christ. So here's the argument of the sermon for us. What's the application as we read this chapter? We should not give up in our pursuit of sanctification. Don't give up in your pursuit of becoming more like Christ because as you become more like Christ, as you follow Christ, as you give your heart to God, as you follow Jesus, you can also be a source of comfort and encouragement to other believers. We comfort one another. The, the way the church is designed is that we might comfort one another as we follow Jesus Christ. We might comfort and we might give joy to one another. So let me ask you the question, are you a source of comfort for other believers? Are you a source of joy for other believers? That's the question as we look at the Corinthians and we say, what is being celebrated here? What's happening here in this chapter? Uh, just to sort of outline the chapter, if you want to just kind of mark these in your, uh, in your text, this is how I broke it up. Uh, verse 1, verse 1 could probably have been included in chapter 6. You know, we, we sometimes joke that the guy who, who put the chapter and verse divisions in the Bible was riding a horse and sometimes his pencil slipped. But, uh, but we'll, we'll include the beginning of chapter 7 with us today and, and see how that works together. Of course, uh, there were no chapter and verse divisions whenever the, the book was first written or the letter was written. They would have read it all at the same time. So maybe that's not even a very good argument, but verse 1 seems a little bit different than the rest of the chapter. 
Verse 1 talks about the promises of God. Because we have the promises of God, uh, we can be sanctified. So verse 1 has to do with the promises of God and sanctification. Sanctification is different than, than your salvation. Sanctification happens because you've been saved. So uh, sanct- uh, salvation is something God does. Okay, you didn't, you didn't make yourself born the first time. You don't, bo- you don't born yourself again. God gives you the new birth. That comes from heaven. But whenever you're saved, there's a, a process we call the sanctification process, which is something you participate in. It's where you uh, decide and make choices empowered by the Holy Spirit of God to become more like Jesus Christ. It's a process that you work at with the Lord. Now, you can't work for your salvation, but sanctification sure is hard work. Verse 1. Verses 2 through 4 speak of love, accountability, commitment to one another. Verses 5 through 9, we'll see Paul talking about comfort and joy. In verses 10 through 13, We'll see a section on repentance and seeking assurance of repentance and, and salvation. And then finally in verses 13 through 16, uh, the joy we have in one another is explored. Let's look at verse 1, the promises of God, the gospel, sanctification. Chapter 7, verse 1, since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Well, what are we talking about there? Since we have these promises. What promises? Well, the promises that are mentioned at the end of chapter 6. So if you look back up into chapter 6, there are promises there. God says, I will make my dwelling among them. I will walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. If they'll separate themselves, therefore, go out from their midst, leave the world... Go out from the world's midst, be separated from them, says the Lord. Touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. That's a promise. I will be a father to you. That's a promise. And you shall be my sons and daughters. That's a promise, says the Lord Almighty. There are promises in the Bible. He says, because we have these promises, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and the spirit. Now, how do the body and the spirit work together? Well, the the body and the spirit are very closely related. Have you all ever noticed that? Have you ever woke up tired one morning and it affected the way you felt? Because your body was tired, you felt bad? Or maybe you you, you were uh, exhausted and and, and that affected your spirit. Or maybe you were happy and that made your body feel better even though you weren't feeling good to begin with before you got the good news. Uh, There's that psycho, what we could maybe call a psychosomatic union Psycho meaning uh, soul or mind and soma meaning body. They're, they're closely related to one another. So Paul says, don't worry about just the flesh or just the spirit. We want to cleanse every defilement of the body and the spirit. We have to contend with both. And it is definitely more difficult to contend with the spirit than the flesh. The spirit is the one that's hardest to overcome, takes the longest, but we must address both. These promises that we have in chapter 6 really deal with the outworking of the gospel. You are a new creation if you are in Jesus Christ. You have been born again if you are in Jesus Christ. You've been made holy, separated from the world. You can know intimacy with God if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. 
So we can't really move on to the rest of the chapter until we answer these questions. Is God your God? Are you His child? Is He your Father? Are you His son? Are you His daughter? Has He welcomed you because you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and that which was once a difficult and a, a, a relationship filled with enmity between you and God, is that now a friendship where there's been reconciliation? If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ, if you've not been forgiven of your sins, today is the day of salvation. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, in who He is and what He's done. That Jesus on the cross was taking the sins and the guilt upon Himself. And he had just lived a perfect life which qualified him to be that sacrifice. So Jesus is the only one who can be a sacrifice, who can make peace between God and man, who can be a substitute for you. And if you will appropriate that through faith and trust in Jesus Christ, if you'll say, I want that forgiveness, then Jesus will take the sins off of you and consider those to be punished on the cross and it'll take the perfect life of Jesus and put it on you and consider it to be yours. So that when you die and you stand before a holy God at the judgment, even though you've sinned, even though you're not a perfect person, God will not see your unrighteousness. He'll see that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ and you are acceptable to God. That's our only hope, is in these promises that we have in chapter 6. These promises must mark our lives. And because we have these promises and we put our faith in Jesus Christ, it's possible for us to obey this verse, that we might cleanse ourselves. You're not told to cleanse other people. You're told to cleanse yourself from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion or fullness or perfection in the fear of God. This is, again, what we call theologically the process of sanctification. It begins when you're saved, and it goes on until you pass away. Now, you can't cleanse yourselves of the sins uh, for salvation. But after you're saved, you are, think about it like this, after you're saved, think of it, you're, you're righteous. It's almost like a, a woman on her wedding day. She's wearing a beautiful white gown that's a symbol of purity. And she's coming down the aisle. Now, imagine... Uh, if, she's, if they said, well, to get to the church, you've got to walk across a, a muddy street. <laughs> she's going to do everything she can to keep the mud off that beautiful garment. And that's what we're to do as we walk through this life, as people that have been saved by the gospel, the power of Jesus Christ, is we're to keep the mud off the dress. Cleanse yourselves from every defilement so you might bring holiness to completion. We should be about this pursuit of holiness and self-examination. We take our little rabbits over to the barn there to put them in the, the stock show. And maybe one great thing about the rabbits, maybe they've got a little something on their fur, or maybe their fur, uh, maybe some of it doesn't look very good. But you know what? You put them in the cage, and you come back the next day, and they look great. You know why? Because they were concerned with their own cleanliness. They were concerned to inspect their coat and make sure that it was clean. And so we're told to do the same thing. Examine ourselves. Cleanse ourselves. Look at what we're doing. Is this honor Christ? If it doesn't, repent or stop doing it. It's not that complicated, is it? 
Sometimes we just have to get over that pride that we could be wrong and just ask God to forgive us and, and, and to cleanse ourselves. If, if we'll ask him to forgive us, he's faithful to forgive us. If we'll confess our sins, he'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. At some point, one writer says, the Christian life is not just about getting rid of evil, but it's about doing good and becoming good. It's about moving on from just, I can't do this anymore, I have to stop doing it, to doing what God commands. Not just, doing what, not just trying to avoid what he, what he tells you to stop doing. It's about fully trusting in God's Word. It's about bringing that holiness to perfection. We can think about that in terms of maybe a lien that's being perfected and how liens against people's property, mechanics liens and property liens, how those certain steps have to be taken before the lien will be valid. And so you're, bringing, you're perfecting that. You're bringing it to fullness. You're bringing it to completion. We're to be mindful of that. What do I need to do in this situation to honor God? And so we see that God is working. He's working in our hearts a great change. He's giving us a new heart that we might become His children, that He might be our God. But when God does that, when He gives us a new heart, it has to change the way we treat people. It affects our relationships. Chapter 7 is an exploration in the relationships here we see in the Corinthian church. And if your faith doesn't affect the way you treat people, is it even real? Are you really saved if, you, if all you care about is rules? We studied that in John chapter 5 today, didn't we? When the man who'd been lame for 38 years is sitting there and Jesus comes and heals him, and what did the... What did the the teachers of the law say, why are you carrying your mat on, on, on the Sabbath? They missed the fact, they missed God. And they, and they missed a chance to celebrate and rejoice, and they'd probably missed many chances to care for this person because they were more concerned about keeping their rules than they were about people. They were more concerned about keeping their rules than they were about seeing God working. And we cannot be that way. The way we treat people matters. It encourages. It brings joy. When we're saved, it moves us from a life of self-absorption to a Christ and other-centered life. You don't become the most important thing in your universe if you're a Christian. You die. Take up the cross. Follow me. That means death. If any man would come and follow me, he must take up his cross. That means that's an invitation to die to yourself, your wants, your pleasures, your agenda, and to live for the agenda of Jesus Christ and to live for other people. What is the, what is the, what is the theme of the life of Jesus Christ? Laying his life down that others might live. That's how you, so following Christ is like follow the leader. It's doing what Christ did. It's not just trying to figure out, you know, should I go here or go here or go here? It's how we live, it's how we act. That's how we follow Jesus. We imitate him. He loved others. His life was not about himself. It was about his Father's will and about loving others. That's how we are to live. This is how Paul is committed to the Corinthians. It's not about himself. It's about them. It's about Christ. Look at verse 2. He appeals to them, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. He says, I've been pure to you. We've been pure friends. We've had a brotherhood. He says in verse 3, I do not say this to condemn you. So Paul's not judging them. 
For I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Paul's not condemning them. He's not judging them. He's encouraging them. And he's saying to them, I'm committed to you unto death. He says in verse 4, I'm acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I'm filled with comfort. I'm comforted. And in all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. Tidings there of comfort and joy. He's been bold in correcting them. He's been bold in speaking out against the church and what the church has been doing. But he's also been filled because of their obedience with comfort and joy. Not because they're obeying him, but because they're responding to God. This is the greatest encouragement is whenever a believer sees another person pursuing Christ with all they have. 3 John verse, uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 4, I have no greater joy, the Apostle John says, than that my children are walking in the truth. When John heard the good report that his, uh, the people he was pastoring or the people he had ministered to were walking in the truth, he said there's no greater joy than that. And for one who is, is ministering and who's trying to develop the heart of Christ within their life, that is the thing that brings us the most encouragement is to see God honored in other, other people's lives. Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, the Apostle Paul says this to the church in Galatia, my children, you are my children, and I'm in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. When we see someone living for Christ, it gives us great joy and great encouragement. But Paul says, until I see Christ formed in you, it is as though I'm in the pains of childbirth. It hurts my heart to see you unformed in Jesus Christ. For a Christian to see his brothers and sisters, or for a Christian, for her to see brothers and sisters thriving in the faith, it is a great source of comfort and joy. It builds us up. The faithfulness and purity of others is a source of great comfort because we're in a world that hates God. And as we're believers, we're in a world that hates us. And so we see here in these verses, and then as we move to verses 5 through 9, how the Corinthians were specifically comforting Paul. Paul was having a tough time in Macedonia. So this is a, a weird way that scholars break up this text, that we studied chapter 1, then we went through chapter 2, and when we got down to verse 13, what I told you way back when we did chapter 2 is I said, right here at chapter 2, verse 13, it's like Paul puts a parenthesis, or I guess it's called a paren. He puts a paren there, and he starts to defend his ministry. And he defends his ministry all the way from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to chapter 7, verse 4. And then it's as though when we get to, to, or, uh, to verse 5, it's like he picks back up from chapter 2, verse 12, where he's talking about his trip to Macedonia and the suffering. And he says, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn. There was fighting without, and there was fear within. It didn't matter if it was on the outside of us or the inside of us. We were troubled. We were afflicted. We had no rest. But look at verse 6, and here's a promise about who God is. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us. What is that? It says something there about God, doesn't it? That you can underline that. What does God do? He comforts the downcast. When your soul is downcast, what a great encouragement is to know that God will comfort you. 
God who comforts the downcast. God's heart is with the people who are suffering. And the way that he alleviated the suffering of Paul and comforted Paul and his companions, they sent them a person. The way God does this, the way he comforts, is he has his people comfort one another. You know, the church we call the body of Christ. Now, right now, is it possible for Jesus, who's in heaven, to walk up and give you a hug? No, he's in heaven. But his people that are called the body of Christ can give you a hug. You can go give someone a hug in Jesus' name, and then you're the hands and feet of Jesus. You, in a sense, have incarnated Christ to another person. You have been the representative, the ambassador of Jesus Christ to someone. When you give them a hug and say, I'm so sorry for your loss, and maybe you don't even know what to say, but that hug and that love that you express will never be forgotten. And so Titus came with good news from Corinth. When Paul was at one of his lowest points, God sent Titus, and he had, he had caused the Corinthians to repent of their sins. And so Titus brought good news. And he says, we were comforted by Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you. So Titus brought good news of how the Corinthians' hearts had changed towards Paul. He says in verse 7 there, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, and your zeal for me. And so in the middle of all that hardship, what does it say Paul did? When he was comforted by Titus and comforted by the news of the Corinthians, he said, I rejoiced still more. And then in verse 8, he begins to talk a little bit about the letter that he sent them. He said, for even if I made you grieve with my letter, I don't regret it, even though I did regret it. For I see that the letter grieved you though only for a while. So he has a little mixed feelings about this letter that he sent, doesn't he? He sent the letter and he felt that it was harsh. And he says, I'm, I'm, I'm sad that y'all were grieved by what I wrote to you, but I'm not sad because I see you're only grieved for a little while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. This is the thing about correction and obedience. When we sit down and we talk with people, and we just have to be honest and ask some questions about what's going on in their life. And one of the strange things about living for ourselves as opposed to living for God is we can ask someone in this situation, if you all remember our biblical counseling class, what's the, the biggest issue that you're facing in your life right now? And the second question is what? What's that? What does God's word say about it? All right, so we, we, let's say we narrow down the issue, whatever the issue is. And, and we, 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 we ask what God's word says about whatever the issue someone's struggling with. So we can say, okay, here's what God's word says. So we can either obey God's word and do this, or we can disobey God's word and do this. Isn't that the choice that we have? Okay, we have a, we've been given a choice to be obedient or not be obedient to the word of God. Well, if we decide that we're going to be disobedient, is life easier or harder right now? Probably easier. Okay, it's probably easier to disobey in the short run, but then does life get harder in the long run? Yes. Now let's say we're going to make the choice to be obedient. Does being obedient to God's will, if we're outside of it, does it, does it make life harder right now or easier? 
Well, if we choose to be obedient, it's going to be harder because we've got to change things to become obedient. But does life get harder or easier in the long run? It gets easier in the long run because God's telling us live this way because it's best for us. And when you do what's best for you, you, you it yields good results. Okay, Ultimately, uh, we can apply that to the gospel. Is it hard to be a Christian now? Yes, because you're a stranger and a sojourner in this world. This world becomes no longer your home. That's hard now, but what about for eternity? You're in the presence of God, rejoicing uh, with Jesus Christ uh, under his reign and under his rule in a place where that's been fully realized. I've got to find my notes again. I really got going. <laughs> so the Corinthians have built Paul up, or excuse me, Titus up. Titus came and built Paul up. And there was great joy sparked by the repentance of the Corinthians. And here's what repentance is. We kind of think of repentance. Well, that's a, we don't like that word, do we? Repentance almost sounds painful to us. But you know what repentance is? Repentance is just turning to God. You know, it, the very act of you turning to pursue God is repentance. Because you're turning away from whatever it was you're doing now, and you're saying, okay, I can't do this on my own. This is, this is offering me no hope. That act of turning to God, that is repentance. You don't turn to God unless you're repenting. But follow it through with obedience. Trust that what he's telling you is the truth. You know, what gives me the most joy is to see people doing that. Uh, it doesn't give, I mean, I, I, of course, my flesh, and, and perhaps I need it. I need the encouragement for someone to say, hey, you did a good job this week on this or that, or I enjoyed the sermon. But it's better when someone says, and it's more encouraging to all of us, I think, when someone says, God is good. Not that the sermon is good or that maybe you prepared somebody a meal and they say, God is good. That brings you uh, more joy in your heart than when someone says, if you're a believer, more joy in your heart than when someone says, that was, great. That was a great uh, steak or whatever they might say. And I love it when you like the sermon but I love it better when the sermon doesn't matter because now you're dealing with the Lord. Not with my message, but with God himself. And it's bringing you comfort, and it's bringing you joy. Because joy is contagious. When someone finds joy in the Lord, that's contagious. That spreads around. But you know what else spreads around? A sour attitude. Building people up is contagious. When you're around someone that's building you up, what do you start to do? You start to build other people up. But you know what else is contagious? Tearing people down. Repentance is contagious. That's how revivals are sparked. But you know what else is, is contagious? Pride and not yielding to the Spirit. There are four words I don't like for my children to say. Y'all know what they are? I can't do that, or I can't do it, or especially I can't do math. That's, uh, those are four words I don't like to hear. And so whenever the kids say, I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it, I say, that's not the right kind of attitude. We don't want to have a can't do attitude. We want to have a what? We want to have a can do attitude. That's the kind of attitude that we want is the kind of attitude that is turning to God, that is repenting, that is 
uh, uh, shewing pride and turning to God and knowing joy and knowing comfort and not saying I can do it or I can't do it, but say God can do this. God can work in my life and make me more like Jesus Christ. And I can love people even when it's difficult because Christ loved me when it was difficult. And that's the kind of ministry we have to others. We should have a ministry of joy and a ministry of encouragement. And I'm the worst about this. Too often, my ministry is of discontentment and discouragement and feeling fears and darkness and not feeling trust and brotherhood and commitment. And I think back to a preacher that used to always come to our church when I was younger. He used to be the pastor of Oak Street in Graham, had a ministry up in Lubbock for all his name. was John Randalls. He's passed away of cancer, but many of us remember the ministry of John Randalls. And what I loved about John Randalls, when he would encourage us as young people, he would say, go into the room and change the room. You're going to go into a room that's not honoring the Lord. You go into that room and you honor the Lord. You're going to go into a room where people are discouraging one another and they're talking negatively. You go in there and encourage and you speak truth and you speak positivity, right? That's, that's the way that we encourage one another. And we do this in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. We do this with love. Even if we have to speak a hard word, such as Paul spoke, we speak the truth in love. And Paul spoke to the Corinthians in such a way that even his hard letter turned them just for a short time because it's hard for that short time to be obedient, but it turned into comfort and joy for them, which turned into comfort and joy for Titus, which turned into comfort and joy for Paul because it's contagious. This turning to God started a chain reaction of encouragement and joy. He begins to explore their repentance, but also the assurance that their repentance brought to them as they repented in verse 10. Look at that. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. He's telling them, look at what has happened in your life. You had godly grief. You repented. That shows that you're earnest. That shows that you mean it. Do you want to know if you're a fraud as a Christian or not? Examine your life. And he's encouraging them. I'm seeing, he's saying, evidence of your salvation because of your earnestness in repentance. What eagerness there was, he says in verse 11, to clear yourselves. What indignation you had at your sin. What fear you had of God. What longing you had for me. What zeal you had to restore this relationship. What punishment you brought upon yourself because you wanted to be made right with God. At every point, you proved yourself innocent in the matter. He's seeing that your repentance is proving and giving you a, a, a comfort of assurance of salvation. He says, and I wrote to you, although I wrote to you, I wrote these hard words to you, it was not for your sake, not for the sake of the one who did wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, which would have been Paul. He says, but I wrote this letter because I wanted it to produce assurance in your life. Look at verse 12. In order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you, that you could see something about yourself and you could learn something about yourself and your relationship to God because the earnest was revealed to them in the sight of God. 
You did this before God because you were returning to God. He says, therefore, we are comforted. Your repentance has comforted us. There was a change of heart there, a purity of desire. Doesn't matter who did the wrong, doesn't matter who was suffering. Paul wanted them to know God. And then their actions matched up with their profession of faith. It comforted him and encouraged him. So again, let me ask you this question. What is your desire for others? What is your desire for your children? To see God working? You know, years ago, I remember one night I took Adelaide to dance, and we, there was a salad bar place or something right across the street from the dance school. And I don't know why we had a few extra minutes. I don't remember what the deal was. Remember we went over there and we ate a salad or something? You probably don't even remember. You do remember? And it was an interesting conversation because Adelaide was you know, becoming a, you know, she was a teenager and she was getting a little bit older and maybe had been seventh or eighth grade. And I, I don't know how old you were. I don't remember. All right. Me too. I feel the same way. Um, <laughs> Well, it was funny that at that salad bar, at that moment, Adelaide was having a conversation with me. I had this realization that she was talking about her faith, but it wasn't really necessarily her faith piggybacking off of mine. She was saying things to me like, you know, my prayer life has been this and this, and I haven't really been wanting to do this, but I feel like I'm, I feel like I'm kind of coming out of that. Like she was examining her own life, her own spiritual life, and I thought, what a relief that is. To, for my, to, to kind of have this realization that she has her own relationship with God and what joy that brought me and, 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 and what a wonderful thing. And maybe I thought, well, I haven't really been working or cultivating on this, but God's been doing it, doing what I haven't been doing. But it was such a comforting and, and, and it filled my heart with joy. And I told many people about that. I said, I just had the most amazing conversation with my daughter because it had brought me comfort and joy to know that she was walking with Jesus Christ on her own. And then finally, in verses 13 through 16, we see the joy that we have in others, uh, the joy that we have in, in, I should say it this, in the, the joy we have in the joy of others. Uh, that's one thing about a Christian, you know. Uh, Christianity, the, the work of Jesus giving us a new heart, it should, we should be able to rejoice with people who are rejoicing, not be envious of them. You know, I've been joking. I'm very envious of Kevin Gray's uh, 1984 blazer when I see that out in the parking lot. And I just think, boy, I really, I really wish that was my car. But I'm happy for Kevin that he has that. But it's in other things too, right? Uh, we, need to be, we should not be envious of other people, especially when they're enjoying the blessings of God. Okay? Uh, we should have joy in the fact that other people are experiencing joy. That brings us joy. Look what he says there. We were comforted, he says there in, in verse uh, 13, but beside our own comfort, we rejoiced more at the joy of Titus. Isn't that amazing? Now, we'd say, well, I was really happy. Y'all made me so happy. But it's an, a whole other way to think about our desires whenever we can see someone else greatly rejoicing and what was Titus rejoicing in? He had just spent this amazing time with the Corinthian church. And he was saying, wow, they really are trusting in Jesus. They're repenting. Paul, they love you, and they're recognizing that you have their best interest at heart. He said, well, we really rejoiced to see Titus rejoicing because his spirit had been refreshed, he says, by you all. And he says in verse 14, Whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. And guys, I had told him the Corinthian church is going to be so amazing, it's going to blow your mind. You know, I tell that to people about our church. I do the same thing. As I say, well, I'll t they said, tell me about your church. I said, well, it's the best church in Texas. 
probably in the entire United States. Now, I know that y'all are a bunch of rascals and stinkers, and I know we're not perfect, but when I'm there at the convention meeting, we are the greatest church in America, <clears throat> all right? And then whenever people come here, I love it when they say, your church is amazing. They're so wonderful. And I say, I know, I know. And that's kind of what Paul did here. He says, I'd made all these boasts, and I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has also proved true, and his affection for you is even greater, verse 15, as he remembers the obedience of you all. You know, we don't remember words. We talked about that in our Sunday school class. I was saying, how many of us, you know, Russell Milmo taught a great Sunday school lesson last week in our class, but it's been seven days, and you know how many people can remember anything Russell said? The answer is nobody, right? We're gonna, we remember very little. That's one thing you realize as a preacher. It's not necessarily the words you're saying, it's the impression you're creating, okay? And, and, and teaching people to revere God's word. But you know what people don't forget? They don't forget your actions. They don't forget your example. They don't forget your love. They don't forget your obedience. And he, Titus was remembering the obedience and how they had received him with fear and trembling, and he says, I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. People say, oh, Paul's being facetious there. He's being sarcastic. I don't think so. I think that he really did have confidence in them because they had returned to the Lord. So we must all remember, like those Corinthians before Titus, all of our lives are a letter that someone is reading. Your life is a message. There's a story that your life is telling and it becomes apparent to people very quickly what you're all about, especially in the church. And there's a great compliment that is given to believers when someone says, I'll tell you about her. She's the real deal. I'll tell you about this guy. He backs up what he says. Titus came back and he said, Paul, the Corinthians are the real deal. There's a great character in the New Testament named Barnabas. Now, his real name was Joseph, but they called him Barnabas, which means the son of encouragement. How amazing that is that this man lived in such a way that they said, your dad is encouragement. You're such a son of your father that you, you yourself are encouragement. Are we encouraging people? Are we the kind of people that give others joy? How can I be someone who gives others joy? How can I be someone who encourages others? Well, if we go back to 7-1, I said it belongs maybe more up in chapter 6, but if we'll go back to chapter 7, verse 1, we'll see that this, this joy-giving, this encouragement ministry is really tied up in our pursuit of sanctification. Are we keeping the dress clean? Are we moving from just the don'ts to the do's? Are we pursuing Christ in such a way that it's encouraging to others and it brings others joy? Don't give up on that pursuit of sanctification. If you want to give others comfort and joy, turn to God. Seek Christ. A sign of a person who's being sanctified that's truly seeking God is that they are a comfort and joy to others. You know, it's an amazing thing to preach at the nursing home or to go out to the house of mercy and preach. You preach to people who don't have anything. They're not going anywhere at the nursing home. This is the end of the road. 
Or you got to the house of mercy and it's people that are struggling. They've lost everything because of perhaps an addiction or life circumstances. And you know what? It's encouraging because they're so eager to listen and so eager to learn. And I know their flesh is weak. I know they're going to turn right around and probably go back like a dog to its vomit to their old ways and habits, many of them. It's going to be hard for them to stay clean, but I love in that moment, I'm encouraged by the fact that their spirit is willing, even if their flesh is weak. But you can be church people sitting in here for years and years and years. Maybe you've been a believer since you were a child. And I've been in the church, and I'm even the pastor, and what's sad is that sometimes we can be the most discouraging. We can have strong flesh. We can not do all the things we know we're supposed to not do, but we've got a weak spirit. We don't have a willing spirit to turn and to repent before God. But in chapter 1, or excuse me, chapter 7, verse 1, here's what we're told to do. Cleanse both. To those that are, are weak in the flesh, They've got to work on the flesh and the spirit. To those that are weak in the spirit, we've got to work on the spirit and the flesh. We've got to cleanse both. We've got to bring both our flesh and our spirit under the lordship of Jesus Christ. Why? Because the dividends of doing that are incredible. The dividends are blessings. The dividends are building up the church. Can you catch a vision for that? Can you say, I'm going to walk out of here and have a, I'm going to have a ministry of encouragement and bringing joy to others because I'm going to seek Jesus with my whole life? If that's the vision you can catch, then let's live it out. 